0: Hello, good morning and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me is noted lamb belly bacon connoisseur Ellie Jacobs.
1: Hey Frank, great to be with you as always, and we'd like to thank our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and Urge, beseech, beg, plead, demand, implore, like, menace, implore, admonish, advocate that you subscribe and rate us on iTunes uh, so we can get that sweet, sweet Casper mattress money and follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship. And that's ship with a P as in profitable, profitable. Yes. <laughs> Something
0: that we someday may be both as a podcast and as uh, individuals. We look forward to that with great anticipation. <laughs> uh, so, friends, we have a great guest joining us later. Uh, the terrific Maggie Moore uh, will join us as our feminist in residence to talk about uh, we'll talk about uh, the project "Women for the Patriarchy," which is not a real thing, and she would never be involved in it. Uh, but first, uh, a few things that are going on in the world, a little bit from the realm of democratic politics. Uh, the California Democratic Party had its primary this weekend and uh, and elected not to endorse sitting Senator Dianne Feinstein for her reelection. Uh, it also uh, the, her opponent did not achieve the uh, the requisite percentage of votes as well in order to achieve election, so the California Democratic Party is officially not endorsing anyone this year uh, that 's not a huge deal in uh, in in the context of the general in the context of the general election but but I mean, it's the people who go to the conventions tend to be a little bit farther left. Dianne Feinstein's relationship with the far left historically has not been especially good, um, but but this is nonetheless a fairly significant moment in the sense that a long-term incumbent with a good political machine should be able to push through an endorsement that comes around every six years, and it and it fell short this time. And I, I think this is it. You know, it's hard to say what effect, if any, this this that undercurrent of dissatisfaction. With Feinstein could have on the primary, could have on the general. I suspect it will all come to naught. But this is more. This is a more visible rebellion from the far from the uh, not even the far left, but just from the party itself and the leftier part of the party in California than we've seen in quite some time. So it is it is noteworthy uh, primarily uh, for that. Just that they were even being able to pick to uh, execute a symbolic protest against uh, a multi-term incumbent is often a, is often a fairly big deal and shows, uh, shows the extent to which uh, the machine that, that, that uh, Feinstein built that has promoted and supported her is beginning to crumble a
1: little bit. Well, uh, yeah, at the same time, uh, Feinstein is outpolling on 46 to 17 percent among yeah. likely California voters. And she's also got close to $10 million in cash on hand, and he's got about half a million. So, yeah, this is not a contested primary in any meaningful sense of the term.
0: Uh, and and, to be, and the, the fact that he was not able to uh, secure the endorsement for himself should not be all that surprising because, again, he just doesn't have, I mean, he doesn't have that much support within the electorate
1: or within the party. This, right. was, this was entirely, I think, a message for her. Yeah, I think that, and it should also be noted that they also didn't, uh, you, you need 60% to gain the endorsement of the party. Uh, so, uh, neither of them did. And also, uh, none of the gubernatorial candidates did either. So, uh, it's not unusual for this to happen. 60% is a pretty high threshold. Um, but I think the interesting part looking at it from kind of a, a thematic standpoint is, uh, the left is going after Feinstein, uh, pretty hard. Uh, I heard a piece the other day talking about, uh, it was basically an ageism piece that she's too old to be elected um which i thought was hilarious given that bernie Sanders will be 78 if he chooses to run uh for president and apparently that is okay if a man's 78 but not a woman and there's no evidence in any way shape or form that her men- mental or physical abilities have diminished uh, in, in a substantial way she had a pacemaker put in last year that's fine my father's had a pacemaker for i don't know 25 years um it's, it's a shame what's happening because she is a, a good uh, legislator and a good uh, representative of her state. Um, uh, I, there is an argument to be made that there is a time and a place for the older generation to start ceding control to a younger group of politicians. Uh, I don't know if this is necessarily that one, but that's an argument that should be fought in a more uh, realistic standpoint where you actually start talking about term limits and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, the the age argument I don't have much time for. Uh, except- Unless, you know, Orrin Hatch taking off non-existent glasses uh, was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yes. Uh, for those of you who haven't didn't see the uh, the clip that was that was ro- rolling around, uh, he was leading. He's the chairman of the Finance Committee. He was leading um, a session of the committee, and he reached up and removed glasses from his face that he was not wearing. Yeah, it's a strong
0: look. I encourage everyone to pull it. It's a real power
1: move. Yeah, I don't have much
0: time for the for the age argument, except in as much as uh, there is a there's a flow to politics. there are cycles to it. Politics can move on. Uh, parties change, positions change, uh, and and you can find yourself out of step with your party. Or in the case of someone like Bernie Sanders and, and also Jeremy Corbyn across the pond, you could find your you can you can hold politics that are largely irrelevant for a very long time, and then find yourself cycling in uh, late in life, which is kind of what's happening to them. Uh, the argument against Feinstein and I, and I think has has some merit in the sense that. I mean, there are a number of individual issues on which people in the party have felt like she is out of touch with not just the far left, of the California party, but with the mainstream of it. Yeah. All of it boils down to uh, an uncomfortably close relationship uh, with uh, with capital, with uh, with money, with Silicon Valley money, and then and also with investment money out from the East Coast. And 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 that's as as that becomes a particularly important and fraught issue for the Democratic Party. I could. I, I think there is a legitimate question about whether or not the party needs a representative from California who has a different, not necessarily an antagonistic relationship. It uh, doesn't have to be antagonistic per se, but but is willing to you know, but is but is a little less close with the sources of big money in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. These are the people who fund campaigns. I understand how how candidates get close to them. Uh, but but it, one of the things that is increasingly clear to me about as the uh, with the Democratic Party's progress over the last few years has been that closeness with some you know progressive folks who have a lot of money in silicon valley and on the east coast uh, and other places uh, has led us away from being as critical of institute as a party from being as critical of and as careful of capital and how it behaves, and how the people who have it behave, as we should be. Uh, so that, that I think is a legitimate criticism, uh, but that that is not going to. And I think that's probably the root of what's happened here in the California Democratic Party. Uh, but none of this, I think, is going to have any particular have, have any particular significance except in as much as it shows that that voice is growing a little bit louder. It's not going to have right. a practical effect on the election.
1: I think at some point you and I should probably have a lengthier episode specifically about the Democratic Party and its relationship with capital, um, both in terms of what they're willing to do and say to get it, um, the relationship in general of you know what are considered more centrist Democrats and their approach towards finance and that sort of thing. Um, uh, it's probably It's a lengthier conversation that's worth having and probably trying to find a friend who's also uh, super smart on the issues to come on and talk about with us. But, um, there was one other thing that was going on uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, and this is in Texas of all places, um, as the renaissance and resurgence of Democrats in Texas continues, um, some of which makes sense, some of which does not make sense. For instance, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who we've spoken about before, uh, he is raising a, just a shit ton of money. Um, and apparently uh, not using it on consultants or pollsters, um, yeah, he, yeah, which is a little bit of a lie because if you look at, it, his, at his FEC numbers, he's paying Blue State Digital, he's paying Revolution Messaging, he's paying some other folks. But mm-hmm. uh, nonetheless, he's claiming to not believe in big data and um, not paying pollsters and yeah. consultants because there's some constituency in the Democratic Party who will respect that for some reason. Sure. Yeah, and and there's there's a lot of criticism about, and and not all of it is completely unjustified about the way that
0: consultants have. There there has the criticism that is sometimes leveled against the party, uh, both the, the committees. So we're talking about the DNC, the DCCC, the DSCC, to a lesser extent the DLCC, which does local races. Um, there has been a sense that there is a coterie of. I once heard someone call it a cartel of uh, polling firms. Yes. yeah, of, of polling firms. Uh, Yeah, pollsters and and other firms that do big data and other things, um, they, you know, they are the, they're the known factors, they serve everyone, and they serve all, you know, 80% of Democratic clients, they serve all the committees, Uh, they're well known, you know, and the critical difference for them is that they're and the critical point for them and the criticism is their, their incentive is not to get it right. But is, that's not what they're incentivized to do. What they're incentivized to do is not to get is, is for is to look so similar that you can't choose amongst them. So you don't want right. to get it. You don't want to get it badly wrong, and that leads to grouping herd mentality. And you see that on the other side of the Atlantic as well. When in the general election in 2017, uh, only one polling firm uh, had a had a had a uh, had a poll before uh, the general election that showed anything other than a massive conservative victory. Uh, everyone else was grouped together. Um, so, you know that that happens on both sides of the Atlantic, and the, and so and there is some some genuine frustration that a lot of money has been spent on polling firms and on consultants that produce results like what we've seen in 2016 and like what we've seen over the last not even 10 years 15 20 years in the Democratic mm-hmm. Party at the state level where you know mm-hmm. outside of winning presidentials and and certainly picking up some meaningful federal seats for the most part we've gotten our brains beaten out uh you know uh, you know across you know from sea to shining shining sea and across these several states so that's that you know that's the objection and it's not without merit uh, at the same time the idea of running a campaign on without without data without polling without consultants they're not all created equal i mean you know just right. You know, I mean, you, you can, there, there are very, very good people out there doing very, very good work. Um, there are very good people who were branded with, uh, you know, who are branded as incompetent who weren't. Uh, sometimes these are just structural issues that firms are trying to work their way out of. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think, and, and clearly O'Rourke's, I'm not using pollsters, I'm not using consultants. I mean, I, you know, come on now. I mean, Blue State is a is a consultant. Blue State is a data firm. You're yeah. like, you know, revolution used, well, revolution has data, res, revolution has public, has public affairs data. Like they've got, like, they've got research, like it's, you're not flying, you're not flying blind. It's a position that he's taking to, I get that might be true in letter. It is certainly not true in spirit. Um, and, and to my mind, it's, it's kind of absurd, but. Right.
1: I, better, I mean, what, what it catches it me mind. on it is a, it's kind of a dumb thing to say. B, it's a really stupid thing to say when anybody can access the, 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 yeah, the yeah, PC report. No. Yeah. yeah, but that took us way off falsifiable. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it exactly. took us way off where we actually were, which is actually a good. That, that's those are the tangents that people have come to love us for. Yeah,
0: this um, is exactly this kind of this kind of unfocused wandering dialogue is. You know, I mean, it's 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 what the people crave. We're just giving them yeah. what they want. That's this is what Ka- Casper mattress got us on the phone. They said, "Guys, you're too focused."
1: Yeah, in our attention deficit disordered uh, society, this is what the people want. We want more digressions. Uh, so we, what I actually wanted to bring up was uh, Laura Moser, who is running in the Texas 7th, which is a um, gerrymandered district that basically looks like Pac-Man um, outside to the, uh, to the west of Houston. Yes, correct. It includes uh, some some chunks of Houston proper, and then some
0: some chunks of Houston not proper. If indeed, and I say this with all with, with, is with never with, 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 well, Yeah, exactly. With a, with a, you know with respect and affection for my friends in Houston, is there any part of that city that can be considered proper, uh, and in good ways and bad? Okay, uh, yeah. More, uh, so Mosier is one of a handful of Democratic candidates. People may have seen that uh, the primary has yet to be decided, but the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, issued a statement condemning her uh, recently, released some oppo, some opposition research that uh, in which she had talked about how you know moving to Texas was, uh, she was looking for, they, it's like pulling teeth that she was not looking forward to it, not excited about living in Texas, generally crapping all over the idea of moving to Texas. Uh, and they released this with a statement.
1: Right, and to give people a perspective, um, it's currently represented by John Culberson. Uh, there's about 700,000 people in the district and the uh Cook score of it is an R plus seven district. Yeah, it's a it it's is it has been seven percent white. Yeah,
0: it has been reliably Republican, but it is it but there there are seven six or seven people running for that in the Democratic primary now, which tells you a lot about its prospect for flipping. It is considered a flippable seat, uh, and and what's happening this this got a number this got some attention. It is un, it is very unusual for a national committee to come down on a uh, on a party on a on a, on someone in a primary like this. Um, and indeed, it used to be that the D trip didn't get involved in primaries. That's the sort of thing that they didn't get involved in primaries at all. That's not really true. There are a lot of ways to be involved without being involved. Um, but they have come out they've come out openly in primaries in the last few cycles because. Um, they feel like they have candidates who are likely to win general elections, and they want to make they want to see to it that those candidates uh, get through the primaries or in, and are in a position to win general elections and become reliable votes in congress uh, and that that has been greeted with <clears throat> what might be kindly termed a mixed reception by local activists, and understandably so uh, but the concern here but but they are and it is extremely unusual for them to what what makes this remarkable is it's ex, it's extremely unusual for them to go this heavy handed it's usual. Usually, that form t- usually that takes the form of picking a candidate that they like, you know, funding them, getting endorsements for them, doing events for them, helping them in a number of ways. It very rarely takes the form of actually condemning an existing candidate. Um, they have got to be sitting on data that suggests that Moser is in a position, or Moser, however you pronounce it, is in a, is in a position to win this thing. That's the only reason they would do something like this, and they are obviously. And I suspect they're sitting on a fair amount of data that suggests that if she were to those remarks and probably other things, uh, I don't know what else is in there. I'm not, i other things that is, yeah, I'm not suggest. Yeah, that's right. I'm not suggesting there's, there's, there's something deep and dark in that oppo file, but, but there's clearly from a political perspective, something else in there that makes them think if she wins this primary, they are dead in the water. Uh, It's an unusual step and a strong one, but, but there, there's, there's clearly what we're seeing here is clearly the, the what they consider the acceptable public face of uh, of the argument against having her as the congressional candidate there.
1: And I think we're going to see a lot of this across the country um, as primaries start ramping up, as state parties start meeting to endorse candidates. I think we're going to start seeing a lot as there are just so many people running in there, can, trying to contest so many seats yeah. uh, that that at some level, the uh, if you want to call the D-TRIP or the DSCC, kind of the external referees, at some point the refs have to step in.
0: Yeah, there there are this and this is and it's tough because you want the process you want you you, you want it to play the, out you wish that organically the process could be trusted to play out and 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 overwhelmingly it can but I, there are some there are we will lose seats good potentially good Democratic candidates will lose seats we will lose some losable seats that we will lose some winnable seats this cycle because. The candidates that could have won them either didn't win their primaries or won them without being prepared to without being prepared to fight the general, because they weren't because they were they they weren't prepared as professional campaigners. This is. I understand act, the activist concern about. I really and and I, I mean I I get this. I I'm understand sympathetic that to it in theory. I, I mean yeah, and, and I'm sympathetic to a lot in practice. There's a, there are a lot of people out here selling very highly priced services that are frankly not worth the bunk. You know they're they're they're, they're you know they're not worth the paper they're printed on. Not worth the you know the energy it took to email them. Um, but, but this is not, but this is a, but politics is a, per, but electoral politics is a vocation for a reason. It is a science. It is not a fucking art. There are parts of it that can, that it's, at its best, it can be art, but it is a science and it requires professional practitioners. Uh, and, and on this note, and, and I just wanted to say something because this is something that I don't know where Laura Moser's campaign was on this, but I say this to you, if you are, you know, if you're running, if you're thinking about running, if you are know know someone who's running probably a fair number of listeners on this thing know someone who's running for Congress, have the conversation about getting their own personal self-research file in order. For the love of God, get your self-research in order. Because if you think for one fucking second that that a Republican opponent is not going to do it, and you're not ready for what's coming down the pike when you emerge from your primary and they come at you with you know with you know with tens of not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of opposition research to bury you with you are fooling yourself i cannot be clearer than that it is it is absolute malpractice to run without a professionally done self
1: research file yeah get it together come don't, on don't plan your launch event until you've done your uh, own own your self oppo um, and if if people you know frank was talking about with the, we're going to lose winnable seats if you need to any kind of lesson just look to the republicans over the last couple Cycles. People like Todd Akin and 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 Christine O'Donnell. Um, these are people who should not have made it out of the primary because they were not good general can general general election candidates. And it can happen in Democratic politics as easily as easily as it happened in the Republican Party.
0: Yes, and 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 I think it's and, and here I here I will leave this. It can happen there here as easily as it happened there. That's absolutely right. Especially at moments with bit of big enthusiasm which we're having right now, and that's awesome. We, it is possible to simultaneously acknowledge the desire of local activists, who again are the ba- are often the backbone of parties. These are the people that volunteer. These are the people that make phone calls. These are the people that win elections on the ground. To understand their desire to have a clean process that gets the, a clean local organic process that, that elects the candidate who makes the best case locally. You can recognize the value of, you can recognize the value and the legitimacy of that view, and simultaneously recognize the idea that we have lost important votes by one vote in the past. We are going to need, and and this is, we are not guaranteed a wave so big that one uh, that one congressional vote, one vote in the House of Representatives, is not going to matter. It could, we are, it could very well be that every last one of these things is going to matter. And throwing stones at people who are trying to make sure that we get our legislative majority uh, is, uh, you know, it is, it is, it is, it is, it may be a little bit short-sighted, or at least to, to not acknowledge that those people are also trying to pursue an end that has value. So there, 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 we have it on that for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, but speaking of people coming a cropper, uh, let's talk about uh, what is happening in uh, in, in speaking and in speaking of these several states. Let's talk about this the state of Israel um, and specifically uh, its leader
1: Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Ellie, what in the hell is happening? So there's a couple of different things that are happening. Um, first and foremost, uh, Netanyahu has multiple times over his public uh, career, which is uh, long and successful in large places, uh, you know, he's a former finance minister, a former ambassador to the UN, a former prime minister, then he was prime minister, now he's been prime minister, again, for, for several terms, uh, currently the second longest serving prime minister in Israeli history behind uh, the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. Um, And Netanyahu has um, surrounded himself with some unsavory characters in the past. Um, Israel in general um, looks into elected officials' dealings very, very carefully uh, to the point that there was an investigation about how much uh, money the prime minister's residence was spending on ice cream. Uh, But the uh, newer issues uh, are two cases that have now sort of spun into a third and a potentially fourth. Uh, The police have been investigating Netanyahu on uh, bribery and corruption um, questions. Uh, Case 1,000, case 2,000, and then there's 3,000 and 4,000. The first one is about just straight up uh, acceptance of gifts from people like Sheldon Adelson and uh, other uh, wealthy uh, supporters of Netanyahu, uh, the totals of which, which is cigars, suits, and champagne, uh, comes up to about $200,000. Well, look, who amongst us hasn't accepted $200,000 worth of cigar suits and champagne? I mean, yeah. you know. But, you know, that's I'm, I'm, we,
0: I'm wearing and smoking pretty and drinking pretty much all of that right now.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, that's a rounding error to some of the corruption that some of the folks in the U.S. Co- that, that the U.S. come fall under. Uh, so that, that's the first case. The second is a little bit more complex. Uh, one of the biggest papers in Israel is Idiot Ahronot. And for years, it has been very anti Netanyahu. Um, if you think about the way, I don't know, um. Uh, the Washington Examiner or Washington Times is anti-Hillary. Uh, it's kind of similar in, in in that vein. It's just anti-Netanyahu. Um, and there's another paper that was started because the Israeli election laws are very uh, careful about what money can be raised and how you can raise money. Uh, Sheldon Adelson basically figured out a way to skirt all that. And he created a new newspaper for several tens of millions of dollars uh, that's given away for free it's called Israel Hayom Israel Today Um, and it's given given out for free at you know bus stops and on the street and that sort of thing and it is uh, um, it's been compared to Um, Pravda the the Hebrew term that people use is the bb tone Um, a newspaper in Hebrew is uh, etone and bb is uh, obviously Netanyahu's. Universal name, so they call it the BB tone. It's the BB paper. He's he's, um, he's pulled he's pulled the Israeli equivalent of a uh, of a Rupert Murdoch. He's created yeah. an entire wing to advance a particular political agenda. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And basically, the idea behind this, the, what this uh, corruption case is, that there was a in uh, a, a, a conversations to create an agreement with the publisher of Yedioth Ahronot uh, that he would stop publishing. Uh, be quite so negative about Netanyahu in exchange for Netanyahu getting Adelson to cut circulation of Israel today's paper. Um, So pretty straightforward there. And what makes it really fascinating is Netanyahu's chief of staff, uh, with Netanyahu's uh, go-ahead, recorded these conversations. Uh, So there are recordings of, of, of large parts of these discussions. Um, and basically what happened, the Israeli police investigated. They have recommended an indictment to the attorney general, but it is up to the attorney general to actually decide to indict the sitting prime minister or not. And then once the prime minister is indicted, he does not legally have to resign. Um, He can sit through the whole time. Um, Ehud Olmert, who is uh, one of Netanyahu's predecessors, uh, he was indicted as a, actually he resigned right before he was indicted um, and then served a uh, not a very lengthy jail term, but he was in jail for a little while. At the same time, the uh, immediate past president of Israel was also in prison for um, unsavory female underling touching, we will call it, um, or rape in a nicer way to put it. Uh, so there, that there's a
0: nicer way to put it. It's more truthful. Anyway, yeah, so, yeah, so he, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. So, yes, yeah, so, let's call, let's call a spade a spade. So he was down for sexual. Abuse. So,
1: so basically, a succession of winners right about that time in in, uh, in Israeli politics. Yeah. So, uh, in in some, uh, the attorney general has to make a decision of whether or not to indict Netanyahu, and that could take a great deal of time, or it could take no time at all. Uh, and that's where we are in terms of what the hell is happening. Okay. So, what does it mean for Israel? So what it means is, uh, so Israel is a a coalition government, uh, like the Israeli part, the uh, British parliament, where uh, a lot of parties team up together to create a functional coalition to run the government. And Netanyahu, in order to be able to do that, uh, teamed up with a bunch of much smaller, much further to the right parties, uh, parties like Naftali Bennett's um, Bayat Hudi and um, uh, Lieberman, who's now the defense uh, minister, um, his, his party, um, parties that would ordinarily not have much say in the government because they're you know, eight or nine seats out of 120 or, or fewer. Uh, the issue is, is that as part of the coalition, they have a great deal of say, and they also pull Netanyahu farther to the right than he may ordinarily want to be. Problem becomes is if the coalition decides is in real trouble, they can, any one party can basically bring down the government. Um, so that's that's thing one that could potentially happen is the government could collapse and thing two is Netanyahu could do things, uh, to um Uh Buddy up to those coalition partners to ensure that he manages to keep the government together Uh, one big thing that is floating around right now Or there's some bills in the knesset about annexing uh large parts of the west bank um Which netanyahu has been fighting uh, largely because the uh, U.S. administration, uh, contrary to people's common belief, is, doesn't just uh, rubber stamp everything Netanyahu wants to do, um, has said not to do it. But Netanyahu, if he sees that there's trouble, he may very well uh, push for one of these bills to go through. And why does he have such a stranglehold on power? So that's the really interesting question. Um, some of it is cult of personality that he has just built over being being uh, an omnipresent um individual in israeli politics since uh, the late 80s uh, certainly and then certainly since the mid 90s um on the international scale scene um part of it is that he has become you know newsweek had a cover story it was either newsweek or time i can't remember probably eight or nine years ago uh it said king bb um and that that's kind of what it is he has created for himself a persona of he's the only one that can do this um and polling suggests that most Israelis believe that. Uh, they don't like him. They don't trust him. They don't think he's a good guy. Uh, but no one no one else seems to, no, no one thinks that anybody else should be running the country. Um, and the fact that there are no other leaders that have the support of even a mild, even a significant minority um, to step forward is really part of the problem. Um, and this is a larger problem for Israeli politics and for, you know, um, Americans of all stripes who advocate for Israel, uh, that there really isn't a whole lot of succession planning going on in the country right now.
0: Yeah, that's that's not encouraging. And, and speaking of not encouraging, there's an element of a White House meeting in this story as well.
1: Uh, what's going on with that? Right. So um, Netanyahu, as he frequently does, although not every year, he is flying in to speak at the APEC conference, the uh, a- um, American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. It's a huge, very powerful, um, not in a... Um, protocols and elders of Zion way, uh, but just in a very smart advocacy route, uh, that advocates for the American Israeli partnership. Um, because Netanyahu has been in power so long, it's very much seen as an extension of his, um, of his reach into the U S particularly around the Iran deal is a good example of, of what they, of what they were doing. I mean, wasting essentially $40 million on a campaign that they were going to lose because Netanyahu wanted them to. Um, and the last time Netanyahu came in for the APAC conference was actually to speak in the, well of the House of Representatives, a speech that he never should have given, uh, even people who thought uh, that him uh, making a big deal about the Iran deal was a good thing. They also, in hindsight, have said that it was not the best decision to give that speech, um, destroying aspects of the bipartisan relationship uh, with Israel. Uh, But he's coming in this year, and he has a meeting with uh, Trump, uh, obviously, there's a lot of news between Trump and, and Israel, uh, move, uh, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and uh, this week making uh, not a formal announcement, but it has been leaked out that they plan on actually moving the embassy on the eve of Israeli Independence Day, or what the Arabs refer to as Al-Nakba, the catastrophe. So I'm sure that'll go really swimmingly, particularly with Team Chaos in charge of it. Um, but the meeting with Trump is incredibly important because everybody is looking at Netanyahu to do something. Um, When it comes to the Palestinians, but much more importantly and pressing is actually what's going on to the north of Israel in Syria and the Iranians establishing uh, bases and weapons facilities, um, you know, miles from the Israeli border, uh, which is not good for the Israelis in any way, shape or form and not particularly good for any coalition partners that are either trying to defend or or defeat Assad because, the Israelis uh, have not hesitated for bo- to do bombing runs over the last several years. As This has been going on in particular uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, an, an Iranian drone flew into Israeli territory. The Israelis shot it down. They sent up some, some F-16s over the border to, bombs, to bomb the sites where the drones were coming from. Um, and for the first time in decades, an Israeli F-16 was shot down, uh, which is a pretty big deal. So uh, to say that it is a remarkably dangerous part of the world that is on a hair trigger uh, is probably an understatement. And it's something that is not getting the attention that it should because um, the Israelis are trying to do some backdoor diplomacy with the Russians and the Americans to get the Iranians out of the area. So uh, this meeting is important because of that. Uh, It's important because of Netanyahu's kind of precarious position in Israel currently, legally. Um, I'm sure the president and Netanyahu can, as they often do, um, talk about their common enemy of the media and and, uh, people trying to undermine them. Um, And uh, there's this idea of when and if the administration will roll out the Jared-backed vaunted peace plan that they say uh, there's things that that both sides will love and things that both sides will hate. So it's a compromise and everybody will walk away with something. So there's a lot going on. Uh, This meeting is important because... um, Israel, uh, over the last few years, uh, particularly Netanyahu and Obama's relationship, was so um, distressingly poor that people were willing—Netanyahu blamed it on Obama, and people were willing to go along with that. But if Netanyahu is not getting along with the Americans now when he has Trump in the White House, then it means it's a Netanyahu problem, which will make his position in Israel far more precarious. So he needs this meeting to go very, very well. So, this is an encouraging turn of events. Uh, a, a, a leader in a,
0: uh, in, a in, in Israel who is there in large part because, or in, at least in part because uh, no one can figure out who in God's earth would replace him, uh, meeting with Team Chaos to discuss uh, how to handle an unfolding and very tense catastrophe uh, and with the potential to uh, to spark some really serious consequences. This is excellent. Uh, you, um, thank you very much for this, for this horrifying update, Ellie, Jake. Yeah. Uh, turning now to something perhaps a little less horrifying, uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to uh, bring in someone excellent to talk about something that is also, uh, that is also serious. Uh, Maggie Moore will be joining us here shortly uh, to talk about Me Too and the women of the patriarchy who attempt to undermine it. And we are back. Uh, and we are very happy to be joined today by uh, Taking Ship's first repeat guest, uh, she was. She joined us uh, no, not quite a year ago, about eleven months ago, almost to the day. Uh, the great Maggie Moore is back. Uh, Maggie Moore, our feminist in residence, uh, our feminist correspondent, uh, is here today to talk with us about a phenomenon that uh, it may be as old as time, for all I know. But there have been some really, uh, some really uh, uh, obvious, some really absurd, some really uh, poignant and painful examples of this over the last few months. Since Me Too became a thing, and we'll get into that uh, directly, uh, she is currently the communications director at the Future Project, uh, which is an education nonprofit that focuses on unlocking the potential of young people. Uh, she is still in Brooklyn. She still does not have a dog, uh, which is a real shame, I think, for everyone. And she is still a Seahawks fan, so you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, that she still retains some degree of, of faith uh, to that particular franchise. Which, incidentally, I, I feel I must point out, is is led by a legit 9/11 truther. So. Thank that for what it's worth. Moving now into the issue that we want to talk about today with Maggie. Automobiles. That's automobiles. We on, that's,
1: yeah. that's exactly. Our feminist right. correspondent we brought on to talk about automobiles. Yes, yeah, because Ellie and I have just
0: arrived from the 19th century, we're not sure who should be talking about what anymore. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, Maggie, welcome to the program and then we'll we'll introduce this thing.
2: Wonderful. Thanks uh for having me back and thank you for that amazing
0: introduction. <laughs> you are you are most welcome. Uh, what you know we could we could say so much more but uh, and perhaps we'll have a chance to again as you again are now our feminist in residence. <laughs> and as your first duty, let's let's get to the bottom of let's get to the bottom of this particular trash heap. Okay, <clears throat> since me too became a phenomenon uh, now months ago, uh, there have been a few examples of a group that I think could only reasonably called women for the patriarchy. And they pop up occasionally in public, they pop up occasionally in, in, in the public prints. And the best example of this I can think of, you sort of think about the chief woman for the patriarchy, is almost certainly Hope Hicks, uh, who works for uh, what Der Spiegel accurately called uh, Ein Sexmonster, still one of the greatest uh, front pages of all time. Ein Sexmonster. She works for a sex monster. And she appears to be a serial monogamist with uh, domestic abuser uh, colleagues. So that would, you know, there's so there's this. She would kind of be the chief of this. But in a public context, I want to name a couple of examples here, and then we'll get into what this phenomenon really is. Uh, after Me Too had started to gain some steam, uh, a, a number of French actresses, uh, most famous of whom is probably Catherine Deneuve. Uh, came out with a with a letter that essentially condemned Me Too as a witch hunt. Uh, and their criticism was that it failed to uh, distinguish between uh, actual uh, actual crimes, actual affronts, and just placing a hand on the knee. That was a, uh, a, a a form that they really seemed to like a lot. Some other folks jumped on that. Uh, the actress, Leonel Shriver, among others, uh, Mr. co-signed that either literally or, or, or jumping on in public to that. There have been others who have come out in defense, literally in defense of some Me Too accusers, including Lindsay Lowen, in defense of uh, of Harvey Weinstein, and and then there there are other angles. Uh, Barry, uh, Barry Weiss uh, from the New York Times opinion um, for listeners: be surprised, Barry Weiss did a bad tweet or wrote a bad thing. In this case, she wrote a bad thing uh, that in which she essentially reduced uh, the Me Too movement to the idea that. Uh, it's that it's we, that the Me Too movement's belief is believe all women, uh, and her and her and her concern was uh, you know uh, you know this has gone too far and surely it will harm an innocent man out there and there are there are others of course who have come into this so a number of women coming from a number of different positions trying to undermine the legitimacy legitimacy of the movement and the legitimacy of the moment um, and we're going to talk about that today so I'm going to lead off with a very uh, with, with 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 I think the question on my mind which is what the fuck is their deal. <laughs>
2: Well, to be perfectly honest, I think that's the question on everyone's mind. Um, And one thing I wanted to say uh, before I got into this is um, you mentioned at the very top of the show that um, there are some real painful and ugly uh, uh, memories and events that uh, are really at the center of this. And... I think what's important when you, when anyone begins to interrogate what Me Too is talking about or where they are coming from, um, that we need to remember that these are centered around events that have harmed people physically and emotionally. Um, and we should always have that sort of anchored at the back of um, our minds when we're... Um, Trying to explore something as a political uh, in a political context. Um, that being said, I don't know what the fuck these women are doing. <laughs> if I'm going to be perfectly honest, um, I think it is too reductive to um, sort of, at least with the French actresses, say that you know they come from a different generation. It's a similar thing for when men use as that as an excuse to have sexually harassing behaviors in the office. Come from a different generation. I was raised in the '60s. It was all fine then. Um, and really start to think about uh, what, what, what Lindsay Lohan is actually saying when she says, oh, he was never, did a, never did anything bad to me. Or what Catherine Deneuve is actually saying when um, she thinks it's fine if a, you know, a gentleman rests his hand on the small of her back for too long. Um, what they're really saying is um, the difference between uh, community and society to address a problem and an individual to address a problem. And... Um, when you have someone like Hope Hicks um, who is consistently dating and defending uh, abusers is that she is taking responsibility as an individual um, for these actions, for her own actions. Um, It's why Barry Weiss writes, why didn't you just get up and leave Aziz Ansari's apartment? Um, because that's so simple. It's an individual's responsibility to take care of themselves. It's a woman's responsibility to make sure that she doesn't get attacked or put into a situation that makes her uncomfortable. Um, and I don't agree with that. I think that there are systemic, deeply rooted um, problems uh, in, in our society uh, that can put women behind. Um, and that it is our job to address the problem by um, addressing the societal and systemic issues. Um so that's really where I think the standard errors uh, are really are, are coming from. Is that um, individuals' responsibility to improve is a problem?
0: This and and I think this fits very neatly into the kind of ultimate pre interpretative difference between uh, the left and the right. In that the right and and there is stripped at absolutely bare. There is value to both. But the right the right defends personal agency above all else. Like nothing must be allowed to infringe upon personal agency, which. It, it, at least it's a kind of broad theoretical context has some value and as a classic list You know Western liberalism is based on the idea of freedom of the individual there. There is merit to that Conceptually and in practice and on the left we are you know dedicated to the communal good Obviously as liberals we find value in that But you would have to find a pretty curdled person on the right to not at least acknowledge that that idea has some value but when it but when it get but this from those simple seeds comes this, you know, comes this this very gnarled tree that leads to things like uh, women legitimately arguing that it is within the power of, uh, of an individual woman uh, that, that her agents, that, her individ, that the individual agency of every single woman is so great that they can always and forever withdraw, they can always remove themselves from bad situations without fear of consequence, and that if they don't, they clearly chose to be there.
2: Yeah, I think what's interesting about what you said in terms of um, the pers- defending the personal agency and the seeds of where that comes from, a man came up with that. Um, if, I, yes. if you're talking about like classical, you know, um, classical philosophy, like men wrote those rules. And what I spent a lot of time thinking about is that
0: are you, are you I, suggesting that we should declare an interest? <laughs> are you suggesting this may, this may not have been purely for the good of everyone? No, this might not have been written down just to benefit humanity and humanity only at large. How dare you, madam? Collect you yourself.
2: <laughs> exactly. Um, but what I spend a lot of time thinking about is that, and trying to have others see, is that as a woman, I walk around in a world that wasn't built for me. And... Um, When we're talking about personal agency and we're talking about, you know, respecting um, boundaries or just being able to get up and and walk out of the room um, is that I'll never be able to to explain or make someone understand what it's like to feel like you inherently don't have any power. Defending personal agency um, and personal responsibility to your death means that you already have it. There are some of us that just don't. Um, Because I can't walk to the subway without getting hassled by somebody because they think that, you know, they deserve my time.
0: Sure. And that that is something that I think at, at some level, the more I see the schism on on gender and on race, the more I think that that's really what it boils down to is the difference in between people who are willing to accept that in an interaction like an interaction with a street harasser, or like an interact, like or or something which you know, I'm not trying to trivialize an interaction with a street harasser, or something a good deal potentially more terrifying and more insidious in an enclosed space with a person who's significantly more powerful. Uh, you know those in those situations that that uh, both people to a sense, but we're focused here particularly on the woman uh, are carrying layers and layers and layers of behaviors and expectations that have been enforced and and, and baked in over time and where institutions will re, about how, how they're in a relationship with this with this man, their relationship with people who might be who are supposed to help her, who might not if something bad happens, right? All of these expectations are just layered on top of each other, which honestly could very easily create. Like this is why the question is not so. The question is so often not, oh, why did she fight back so ferociously? It's why didn't she get up and leave? Like this is why freeze appears to be the modal response. Neither fight nor flight, but freeze. Because what else would you do in a situation like that? It's, and and this and, and, and there is to I mean there, there's a there's a racial allegory as well. And the idea of accepting the idea that like we all carry a huge amount of we all, you know we all we you know we have these series of relationships and expectations for our behavior baked into ourselves, and that those cre- those create our reactions. Uh, and that it's not the world is not a world of perfect agency is really really hard for a lot of conservatives to accept, and I think is at the core of a lot of their thinking now. And we saw that uh, we saw that yesterday a little bit when uh, uh, when the writer Mona Karin was uh, forcibly escorted from CPAC. Uh, for apostasy, when she, among other things, called out, spoke the truth. Yeah, she, she spoke the truth. When, among other things, she called out. Uh, uh, she, I mean, she called out her, but she called out her party over a large number of things. Uh, she was, she was not to be silenced yesterday. Uh, but she called out her party over, uh, particularly over its support for Roy Moore and over its excusing Donald Trump's sexual abuse. Uh, and she was, and, and she was led from the. She was booed and led from the building by security. Uh, and before we start welcoming her to the resistance, uh, let, let's, let's get ourselves together. This is a woman who wrote uh, whose two books are titled "How Lib- uh, Do-Gooders, How Liberals Hurt Those They Claim to Help, and Useful Idiots, How Liberals Got It Wrong in the Cold War and Still Blame America First. So she's not welcome to the resistance, but, but her willingness to speak
1: truth and criticism of Trump and Roy Moore got her tossed out of the temple. Right. All in all for basically saying that we excuse all this because they have an R next to their name. Not saying that the behavior itself is excusable in any way, shape, or form, but saying that the movement has made a decision that the R is more powerful than any wrong that these people have brought on to themselves or to other people.
2: I find that so distasteful and just, quite frankly, just like some of the most disgusting stuff that people are willing to excuse in a craven way um, for, you know, political gain because, you know, I mean, but, I mean, that is their job. They work in politics professionally. I get it um but it's it, to me it's similar about the the tension between um uh, Woody Allen for example so separating the artist from their art and sort of saying like I don't like what Woody Allen did but I really love Manhattan like I love that movie I love all of his movies and I think it was the writer uh, Roxane Gay who said um there I I am unwilling to um Put a victim's pain aside to appreciate art. That's not a cost that I am uh, that I'm willing to accept. And what I think is horrific are watching Republicans decide to ex- that they are that that is a cost that they are willing to pay um, is accepting serial sexual abuse of children of minors um, just so that they can get a seat in the Senate. That that's sad and gross.
0: Yes, sad and gross. This is, the, that is perhaps the finest assessment of that situation I've heard. Uh, and, and so let's, let's talk about the, again, let's bring this back to the women for the patriarchy and and the and who are willing through various means, and it may be joining the booze of Mona Karin and getting her tossed out of CPAC and maybe voting for Roy Moore, or it may be, let's go back to the ones who are sort of publicly leading the attempt to uh, to undermine the legitimacy of Me Too's uh, movement and moment. How much of this do you think is an honestly held belief in the importance uh, as you just described the, the the idea that women that we live in a world of perfect agency and and you know women can can choose to leave the situations if they want to, versus how much of it is just contrarianism for contrarianism's sake or even contrarianism for
2: career's sake I think that probably in the past couple years it has become contrarianism for contrarian sake i think there is a nugget of a deeply held truth they really do believe that um but you know I think we've seen the rise of people taking these sides to make money, to um, get their name out there, um, to essentially use it as part of their brand. Um, and it's really smart. It's, it's a savvy and disgusting thing to do. Um, but I think, I think you can see it in the ever popular New York Times opinion page.
0: Uh, <laughs> yes, see it the most <laughs> valuable journalistic real estate in the country. Now a goddamn exactly. swamp. Oh God, it's super fun side. Anyway, please. Sorry.
2: Exactly, and I think I mean we've it's and it's definitely expanded beyond just uh, uh, women who um, make a career out of um, questioning uh, and sort of being anti-feminist um, as part of their brand. Um, but like you know, in the New York Times, uh, constantly putting in stories about like the Nazi next door. It's like this idea of taking on these contrarian um, or, or really hot takes, um, has really taken off in the past, uh, couple of years. Um, but writers like, uh, Caitlin Flanagan, um, who are like professional trademark anti-feminist is so bizarre to me. Um, and people that, um, uh, I, I wish I could remember how to say her last name, Katie Roifey.
0: Let's say let let yeah, whatever whatever. matter? You know, I mean
2: doesn't it matter because I don't Rooka. agree with her opinion.
0: Ruka. <laughs> yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, it's anyway, yeah, Katie Katie Ruff, yeah, the yeah columnist who's made her career out of undermining campus rape concerns and otherwise engaging in feminism and bad faith.
2: Right. And I think the idea that they that writers like that or or personalities, whatever you want to call them, um are taking advantage of that. Um really arms then an opposition to say we can hold these opinions because we have, you know, a registered member of the female gender who says that this is okay. It's that um, credibility chip, if you will, um, of having um, the woman on the panel that sort of says, that um, agrees and lends her credibility as a female um, to, to the idea that it's okay to still vote for Roy Moore, something like that.
0: Yeah, so it's it's making and there's all there's always been uh, there's always been a decent living to be made. Uh, decent is completely the wrong word, but there's there's always been a lucrative living uh, to be made. Uh, being the voice, uh, being the, I mean, there's there's no you way know, to talk whether about you're this without getting Latin- into, without getting into offensive terms, but being the good one,
1: right? Yeah, if you're the Latino guy on Fox News or the Black Republican, there's always space for that. Exactly. And
0: and and as Roy Moore just, or not as Roy Moore, excuse me, as Michael Steele just find out, there's always space for that until there isn't. Yeah. Actually, this would be a good. This is a good one. This is a good moment. I think for for anyone who is contemplating a career in that, and I realize that you know i mean this this you know this this uh, this gaggle of white people that we have here this i'd like to say that a, gra- a gathering of white people like a crash of rhinoceroses in a parliament of owls is a brunch this particular brunch of white people may not be in a position to speak exactly to the to to speak with great authority in this but i will say if if you are contemplating a career in this and you're going to be the you know the the, the person who makes being racist okay for white people or being misogynist okay uh you will never be loved or accepted by the people whose favor that you want. They will tolerate you as long as you're useful and then they will then they will cut you off. You will never be part of the tribe. Michael Steele learned that a couple of days ago. He should have learned it a lot earlier than that. And his lesson is going to be the lesson and the only lesson for folks who decide to carry water for people who hate them. Yeah, Dinesh
1: D'Souza is another wonderful example of that.
2: Well said, fuck those guys.
0: So, returning now to uh, women who have made their careers in uh, in engaging in feminism in bad faith and generally providing cover for people who want to criticize feminist issues, they haven't always been on the fringe. I mean, Caitlin Flanagan writes for the Atlantic, which is uh, you know can be you know centrist or faux centrist garbage, but was also the place that gave Tanazika Coates his his start and platform. It can be quite quite good. Uh, but why is the New York why has this crept into the New York Times opinion section? And again, what's going on with that place? Is a a broader conversation we can certainly have, but why is this now so much more in the mainstream than it has been in the past?
2: I think when we're looking at um, the contrarian ideas around the Me Too movement, is that, uh, as we acknowledged at the top, these are deeply painful um, and impactful um, events and attacks or uh, that have happened to people. And to continue to have um, these... Uh, Accusations of harassment or people being fired means that we are really reckoning with um, some deep-seated problems. And these contrarian ideas give us some relief; they kind of let us off the hook um, a little bit. And I think it sort of allows then people to feel as though the world is not changing for them too quickly, um, because that's really scary for folks who uh, who have held on to power for a long time. Um, I read a while ago in a piece, I think in the Huffington Post, um, uh, a quote that said, um, equality can feel like oppression um, if you're always the one who's held on to the power. And I think that that's where where the desire to have this contrarian opinion um, about the sexual assault moment that we're having um, in the mainstream media.
1: I think there's also I think there's also a functional aspect to it and I, I mean I would call it almost the cnning of the opinion world at large where every viewpoint now has to be covered because there's just so much space that needs to get filled and so many words that need to get written and so much you know talking heads that need to talk that there's an aspect that now that there now there's space at the table for people for people who ordinarily wouldn't have that space you know content for the content god basically it, it's oh. feeding the content god and i think that's exactly right i i think that you know whereas somebody like you know barry weiss who you know think whatever you may of her, like there wouldn't have been space at the new york times opinion pages or their website in, if the website wasn't desperate for content on a regular basis Clearly, I think that, yeah. I think, right. that there's, I think there's an aspect to it that there's a function to it, but I think the function also builds off of what Maggie was just saying that there is a large percentage of this country, and then we saw we saw that with you know, polling around Donald Trump's rise and and victory of people who are holding on to uh, antiqu- things that we that some of us could try to consider or push to become antiquated ideas, and they're holding on to them with the last grasps of their cold, dead hands.
2: Yes to that, but what I also think is interesting about the New York Times, I heard the other day, is now 60% of their revenue is coming from readers. is coming from subscription because of the rise of digital, um, that the paper is a lot more accessible. So most of their money is coming from people that are reading um, that, uh, fr- from readers as opposed to ad sales, which is incredible, but this is a huge moment um, to, to service your readers. And by continuing to give Barry Weiss or... David Brooks column inches to feed that content beast, I think it's just irresponsible.
0: <laughs> David Brooks. Can we just, yes. Yes, to continue to feed the beast by giving by giving as David Brooks is irresponsible is, I mean, I, you you have just uttered an absolute truth of journalism uh, and, I, and I would argue even a cosmic truth. Uh, I, I, for, forgive me, I, I'm going to drive this bus right off a cliff here, but yes, let us take a moment to marvel at the man who was able to take, a concept like the or is able to take a program like better angels which is a sort of interesting little program you know his most recent one of his more recent columns is about this listeners uh if you didn't read the whole thing this is in case you didn't in the event you didn't read the whole thing through and i don't understand how you why you wouldn't have uh a Better Angels is a program that goes around the country having people with extremely different political views talk to each other and, and trying to figure out how we can begin to build some kind of sense of political community and maybe maybe reach points of agreement that seemed impossible. It's an interesting uh, program. I think that it is it's worth looking at for its process. Uh, David Brooks managed to take this take this program and use it to frame an argument that, and use it to frame the argument that what we really need for gun reform is respect for gun owners. Uh, which is perhaps the least timely, least morally defensible, and most absurd possible take you could possibly have on the subject. I mean, it was like the man took, you know, a reasonably good sandwich and twist, you know, and twisted it up and attempted to serve it as, you know, as a, you know, as a heaping helping of garbage to someone for lunch. It was absolutely insane. So yes, to get back to your point, yeah, you know, what what purpose for readers is being served by foisting David Brooks and Barry Weiss on them? I will never understand.
2: I think the sandwich part of that metaphor was apt because David Brooks couldn't even respect a woman in a restaurant ordering a sandwich, let alone a gun owner. So he's got to get a grip.
0: Yes, this is exactly. Yeah, there's something about. I think that probably is where that came from. That I'll always associate him with 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 badly executed sandwiches forever. Which honestly is the epithet he deserves, as far as I'm concerned. So but the left can get, all right, I'm going, try and, I'm going to try and back this this bus back up onto the road and out of the ditch that I drove it into. And the left can get tied up in knots on this as well. And I think a pretty good example of this uh, that I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on are uh, when Kristen Gillibrand uh, condemned Al Franken when he was accused of sexual harassment. Uh, she condemned him, and then she was condemned for not condemning Bill Clinton, uh, who of course has been accused of many acts of uh, of, of sexual harassment uh, over the years. Uh, and then she, I believe, did condemn him, and then was condemned for condemning him too late. And I feel like there might have been some other act of condemnation that may have come in from somewhere else. It was there was a lot of condemnation in a small space, which uh, I, you know I think reveals may reveal some agendas, and and may also just reveal. Uh, how freaked out the left got when we had to look at what's happening within, when we have to look at this stuff within our own ranks. Uh, and, you know, fresh cases versus kind of what might be un- very charitably termed legacy cases of, of harassment and abuse. Uh, so I think that kind of, that, you know, how, what does this tell us about the left and and particularly about that example, the, the Gillibrand and Franken and then Clinton?
2: I think it is important for us to remember that this is not, um, a right or a left issue that this isn't something that just lives in the conservative camp, that this is something that happens in, you know, our own backyard. Um, but Gillibrand posted an interesting, uh, dynamic. Um, like you said, it turned into a condemning spiral uh, of madness and she's responding to Al Franken as quickly, um, as she did, um, is just, is more apt to the news cycle. It was a question that she was responding to in real time and to hold her responsible for not, condemning Bill Clinton and his acts uh, and his, uh, and what happened in the 90s, um, quite frankly, is just a way of holding um, a female responsible for the behaviors of a man. Um, because now, um, in, uh, in 2018, when we're talking about Bill Clinton, we're actually really more looking at him through the lens of Hillary. Um, she was more recently running for president, uh, and more recently under a lot more scrutiny. Um, and so, you're holding Hillary responsible, and then holding Kristen Gillibrand responsible for not uh, condemning condemning him fast enough. Um, and if liberals love anything, it is eating our own young and shooting ourselves in the face. So, of course, we're going to beat up you know members of our own party for not doing it right. Um, but ultimately, it's it's kind of a nothing burger in terms of. Um, in terms of Gillibrand not responding quickly enough to to something about Bill Clinton.
0: Absolutely and that's that's and that's a really that, that is a, a really excellent point that a lot of this just comes from our own and, and so it comes from our you know our own desire to just I mean you know we love nothing more than than uh, you know a good internecine war I mean that's that's real that's right where we're at uh you know when we're able to fight each other viciously and without mercy uh we are we are certainly at our happiest if not at our best uh so uh, I mean to 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 wrap this up. What what is clearly not going to happen is that we are going to reach the final resolution of this, and that we are going to be able to put to rest the phenomenon of women for the patriarchy. After all, which I think is a is, is maybe the uh, the outcome that we had all hoped for in a, in a short Sunday morning's work. Uh, but I don't think that we're going to get there. So sorry, listeners. Uh, but so where where does this thing go? What is what you know? Is there a resolution? Where where does this conversation go next? Uh, how can we leave this?
2: I don't know if we ever can leave this. I don't know if we can ever walk away from it. Um, Because what the deep root of what's going on in the Me Too movement, um, are women are asking for um, equality. And that is a struggle at which that will continue for a long time. Um, What I can say, though, is that I have been very inspired and encouraged by The types of complex and interesting conversations that um, men and women are having together and that's happening in uh, the media right now, I was really nervous that this, um, that the Weinstein allegations would kind of come and then go and then uh, we all just went along our merry way. But I do really feel like we are living through a moment of history. Um, And I think that uh, it's far from over. So I think that there will be continued growth and continued evolution. Um, And where it will lead, you know, I'm not really sure.
0: Excellent. Well, I think that that's right. I do. There is a sense on this, and a few other, and, and and a number of other things that we are living through a moment of history. That's very nicely put. Uh, and on that note, uh, we will move into the lightning round, which is always a moment of history of its own. In its own, it's a snapshot, is what it is. Uh, okay. A, a we're moving into the
1: lightning round. Ellie Jacobs, take it away. All right, uh, Maggie. We will be comparing these to your answers a year ago. Oh,
0: so. Cool. Uh, <laughs> and any deviation from what i you
2: cannot said, be so responsible for what i said a year ago no, like be, absolutely
0: oh not god this whole thing <laughs> is an exercise in trying to identify your hypocrisy so we can criticize you because
1: that's going that's that was the whole point of this segment I mean, oh boy, pretty much pretty much all right so maggie a can you recommend a book a piece of music a film or a television program uh that you to our listeners
2: Oh, man.
1: Just one. You don't need to do every category.
2: Yes. Um, So I know that we are living in a moment of peak TV. So this feels a bit shameful. Uh, But I think it is my duty to alert everyone to the fact that ER is back on Hulu. And that show is amazing. I know it came out in 94. And I know there's a lot of good TV. But I love that show so much.
0: Wow. That is... Wow, that's a that, that is a strong take. That's a very An strong take. take, and a totally unexpected take. I think quietly that might be one of the strongest and hottest takes I've heard in a long time. And I no, I, I'm, I do I'm, good fans, and I'm,
2: I'm, um, I'm being contrarian for contrarian's sake. No, I actually I really love that show. It's no. so good.
0: Clear. I mean, clearly, no no one would take the position that you should watch ER on Hulu. You know, as a, you know, as a career move, like that's clearly born of a
1: deep and powerful personal love. And I have to say, I admire it deeply.
2: Oh, thank that's you. solid
1: all right uh next question are pop tarts ravioli
2: oh my god first of all how dare you ask me that question <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes yeah i
2: mean like I, my 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 like gut lizard brain is screaming no kind of like how i want to say a hot dog isn't a sandwich but like yeah it is so like don't at me <laughs>
1: <laughs> <God damn it. laughs> all right uh third question what is your favorite beverage alcoholic or not
2: my favorite beverage i probably said this last year uh, but i run off of seltzer um mm. if it doesn't have bubbles i don't want to drink it so it's also how i stopped drinking a lot of diet coke um was switching over to seltzer so yeah
1: seltzer, good move sure. i drank it by the case in college uh, all right. The, so the person in the question, United States drinks twelve of them a day, and you can't say fairer than that. No, I, I drink the seltzer. Like by oh, the case oh, okay, all right, fair enough. Um, in the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something. What is one organization you're supporting, and why?
2: One organization that I am supporting—that's so hard. Um, I would say. Um, this, so this is a more of a New York specific uh, organization. Um, it feels apt for this conversation. Um, is an organization called Hollaback. Um, it uh, they focus on um, they focus on a lot of things, but uh, it's an organization bent on ending street harassment. But they also provide bystander intervention training, um, and I am constantly just inspired uh, by the work that they're doing. So Hollaback.
0: Awesome. And uh, Maggie, where can people who wish to follow your thoughts uh, and, and, and musings and uh, projects and insights, where can they find you?
2: And other things. Um, I'm on Twitter.com, uh, Maggie M012.
0: All right. Terrific. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been uh, an, an incredible conversation. Uh, thank, and we are very, very happy to have you on board as our feminist correspondent, our feminist in residence. We look, forward to, uh, we, we look forward to never having to talk about these issues again, because feminism is one, all is equal. Everything is fine. Good day.
2: Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having <laughs>
1: me. This was great. No, seriously, thank you very much. This was awesome. And we look forward to talking to you again. Yeah. Thanks, Maggie. All right. Uh, thanks again to Maggie Moore for joining us. Thank you all for uh, sticking through this episode. Um, as a reminder, please do be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in patriarchy. Um, you can follow Frank at Frank spring and me at Ellie Jacobs also on all on Twitter. Um, and again, please do, do line up those ratings for us. They are important. Uh, we've got a good good slate of guests coming over the next few weeks, so be sure to subscribe so you get those uh, episodes delivered directly to you. You don't have to go hunting for them uh, and, and, and waste time. That is so valuable to all of us. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week?
0: We take ship this week for Switzerland, which is going to take some doing, uh, but we'll get there eventually. And it's important that we do because uh, recently the Swiss passed a piece of national legislation uh, with respect to to lobsters, consider the lobster. They said, and in this case, uh, what they what uh, their legislation uh, is prevents uh, lobsters being boiled to death, which is a traditional uh, being boiled to death. Uh, it, it is a traditional way of serving a lobster is to actually boil a live lobster and serve it to the customer who chose it. Uh, this happens all over the world. The Swiss are done with this. The lobsters have to be killed in more humane ways and then boiled. Uh, that's that's the new Swiss regulation. And I mean, look honestly. I don't care how the Swiss kill their lobsters, particularly if they wish to kill them humanely, that is absolutely fine. But there is a war on a war with the sea and this type of coddling of lobsters, who, as we know, are the shock troops of the ocean. Yes, this type of coddling of lobsters sends exactly the wrong message to our our aquatic enemies that our resolve may be weakening. And then it's the Swiss of all people. Absolutely. The Swiss of all people is something I cannot tolerate because these people managed to stay neutral against the damn Nazis, but they have to come off the sidelines on this one and side with our watery foes. I will not wear it. So friends, we take ship this week for Switzerland. We're going to give them a damn good piece of our mind and maybe have some humanely killed lobster while we're there. Take
1: Take care, everybody.